there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. It's not very difficult for us to acknowledge that our lives are limited. Mostly, people will acknowledge that their lives are limited in an outer way, that they don't have a Rolls Royce, or they don't have a Learjet, or they don't have $10 million in the bank. Used to be, be a millionaire, but now, in order to be a millionaire in our culture, you need to have at least $10 million, probably more. I don't even know what the inflationary rate is. But when I was a kid, it was a million dollars was a lot of money. Now it's like taxes. It's just not the same. So most people can admit, can acknowledge, yes, there are limitations in my life. I don't have this, I don't have that. But we're not so quick to notice the limitations that we have internally. And we certainly don't know what the limiter is. We don't know what it is that's limiting us. Even when we do acknowledge that our lives are limited, we automatically place the cause outside of ourselves. Well, it's because I don't have a good enough job. It's because I didn't get a good enough education. So I don't have enough money. It's because the economy is really bad right now. It's because business is bad. It's because people are stupid. It's, we have all these causes for our limitations outside of ourselves. The payoff, and there's always a payoff, no matter what it is we're doing, if we're doing something, there's a payoff. We're getting something from it. The payoff for putting the cause of our limitations outside of ourselves is that we get to feel like irresponsible victims. That's what it pays us. But people might say, well, I don't see how that's getting paid. Well, look a little harder. Observe a little more closely. And if you don't see it, then maybe you don't want to. Maybe you have a buffer. Maybe you have a picture of yourself as someone who never is irresponsible and is never a victim and who never wants to be. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. But if you'll observe yourself, you'll find the answer if you'll sincerely observe yourself. If you just want to be right, well, then there's nothing to talk about. There's no sense in talking about this at all with me because I don't have any desire to argue about it. Either observe it and find what's actually there or be right. It just doesn't matter to me because I need to observe myself. And the only one who can observe yourself is you. Because there's a payoff in everything, there's also a cost. And the payoff, being irresponsible victims, martyrs, all that stuff, is a wonderful payoff, and we all have sipped at that cup more times than we'd like to admit. But then there's the cost, the cost of keeping us as we are, with an excuse to stay that way. Staying as you are is one thing. Having an excuse to stay as you are is more dangerous. If you're without excuse, if you are the way you are, and you're staying the way you are, but you're without excuse about it, you have a possibility of freeing yourself. But if you have an excuse, chances of freeing yourself are very slim. It's kind of like a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's amazing the things you'll do if you have a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's amazing the license you think that gives you. We give ourselves with a get-out-of-jail-free card. Staying the way we are prevents us from self-change. Self-change leads to transformation. Self-change is not transformation. Self-change is simply the preparation, is preparing the road for transformation. It's opening up the channels for transformation to come through. Self-change is putting our house in order, as it were. Self-change is getting the connections between the centers right. Self-change is getting the horse, the carriage, the driver all hooked up properly, the carriage in good shape. Self-change is all of that. Then the real transformation comes after that. And you don't have anything to do with that other than the preliminary process of self-change. Is this clear? 
Good. I want this to be clear because I think it's not so clear in many of the teachings. And I want it to be clear. If we continually feed on the same nutrient-poor impressions, never getting anything new into our impression diet, we can't grow, we can't develop, and therefore we can't transform. Remember, this process is all about transformation. The self-change is the hardest part. It's the hardest part because it is the part we get most identified with. It's the part the false personality feels most secure in doing. And so it wants to do all the change and, of course, take all the credit for all the change. And it really doesn't change anything. It just rearranges things and then fills us with imagination so that we imagine that we're in the process of transformation or we're in the process of self-change and development. The new impression food we need is to see what we're like in the light of esoteric teachings. To see what you're like isn't really that important. To see what you're like in the light of esoteric teachings makes all the difference. If you're with a bunch of drunks and you're a drunk and you see that you're drunk, so what? But if you're with a bunch of sober people and you're drunk and you see that you're drunk, then you have a different impression. Then you have a different opportunity. Then you have something else to look at. So we need to see what we're like in the light of esoteric teachings. Nothing keeps us the way we are like our attitudes, which limit the mind and prevent us from experiencing anything new. How do attitudes keep us from experiencing anything new? How do they prevent us? Well, they stop us from ever receiving any impression other than the impressions that fit in with that attitude. So an impression comes and it's like, let's say you're playing catch with somebody. You've got a catcher's mitt and they're standing over here and they're throwing a ball to you. The catcher's mitt is like your attitude. Where that ball hits is going to be in your attitude. You're going to catch it with your attitude. And if your attitude is fixed and always the same, acquired, then you're going to catch every new impression in that mitt. And you're never going to have anything different. It's always going to be the same impression over and over and over again. This is why you'll hear people talk about things that are boring. Nothing is boring if you're there. If you're not there, I don't care what it is. It can be boring. It can be the most exciting thing in the world. And if you're not there, if you're receiving those impressions through fixed attitudes, it's going to be boring. Or it's going to be what it always was, which eventually will make it boring. Acquired attitudes act as detours in the mind, which prevent us from thinking for ourselves. Kind of begs the question, well, then who's thinking for us if we're not thinking for ourselves? Well, the answer to that is your entire history, your family, your teachers, your friends, your relations, movies, books, TV shows, newspapers, magazines, what's written on the bathroom stall. That's what's thinking for you. And that's not thinking at all. That's basically just the regurgitation of the past. It's just a wheel that keeps on turning and spitting out the same thing over and over and over again. This is what happens to us when we don't see our acquired attitudes. They detour our minds so that we can't think for ourselves. We've got to begin to think for ourselves about this work, if nothing else, if we ever hope to understand it. You can never understand this work by listening to me. You are going to have to work this out yourself. You are going to have to take whatever it is that you hear, whatever it is that you read, and you are going to have to apply it to yourself. And as you apply it to yourself, you will begin to get understanding. We know that knowledge and being combined make understanding. So when you take the knowledge of this work that you've accepted, that you've verified, and you combine it with your being through practicing this work as it is laid out, as it's given to do, then your understanding increases. Remember that understanding is the greatest force that we can create in ourselves. 
If we don't understand this work, it won't be able to help us. There are people who have been in this work for five, ten years, and nothing has happened. And the reason nothing has happened is because they don't understand it. This is their little uniform that they wear. It's their school uniform. You know what school uniforms are, right? You've seen school uniforms. This school has these colors. This school has this blazer. This school has this crest. This school has this emblem. Well, this school, the fourth way, has a certain uniform, certain crest, certain emblem, certain colors. And you'll see people wearing those colors. What they do is they just put it on. They add it to themselves. They put it on. And then they walk around saying, yes, I go to this school. Yes, I go to this school. Remember we talked about this with the fourth way vanity license plate? That's a uniform. You see, it's look at me. See, I'm wearing this silly hat. Look at me. See, I have this. I'm wearing this uniform. And it's putting the work on you, not taking the work inside of you. Taking these ideas inside of you is what gives you the possibility of transformation, gives you the possibility of evolving into what it is that you could be, that you could be that a can of Campbell's soup can't be, that you could be that your cat, your dog can't be, that you could be something, something is open to you that's not open to other animals on this planet. And to not take that opportunity is probably the greatest mistake that a human being can make but one that obviously the majority of people make with monotonous regularity. This is why self-change can be misleading. We can self-change to a point, and even that takes a great deal of help from greater ideas. What are you going to change? You're going to change what your psychologist tells you? You're going to change what your mother tells you to change? You're going to change what your husband or wife tells you to change? Oh, yeah, you're going to change. You have to have help from somewhere. You've got to have some kind of a point, a standard, like a yardstick. You've got to have something to which you can compare yourself to see if you're actually making any progress or if it's all imagination. And that something that to which you must compare yourself must be something real. See, this is why it's so important to get in touch with real conscience in ourselves because that's the real standard. That's the gold standard upon which everything else is based. And if we can get in touch with real conscience and we can obey real conscience, then we can really change. Then we can really progress. Then we can really develop. If we don't, if we just go by what this latest fad is this month or this year or this decade or this lifetime, that's hit and miss. We may or we may not make progress. Greater ideas give us force, but only through our understanding of those ideas. See, if you have a head full of greater ideas, that doesn't mean you'll get force from them. It could mean that all you'll do is become a pompous ass who goes around blabbing about the greater ideas with no understanding whatsoever of what any of them mean and never applying any of them to your own life. Those people are generally called teachers, people who don't do it, but instead go out and tell other people to do it. I'm not saying teachers are bad. I'm just saying that there are people who just teach but don't do. They don't do it themselves and they teach it. And I'm not saying that they're not helpful. Anybody who is sharing these ideas is helpful to a point. That point is limited by how much they are applying the ideas to themselves. You have this look on your face like I'm losing you. An idea has force, but it's like a macadamia nut. If you don't crack it, you're not going to get the force out of it. And understanding is what cracks the nut. Understanding is what cracks the idea open and gives the meat to you so that you can be nourished by it. Anybody can collect nuts, but not anybody can crack them open and get the meat out of them. That's what I'm saying. So stop looking like you don't understand what I'm talking about. That's an order. Stop. <laughs> yeah. You know, this gets, it gets kind of heavy. So every once in a while, you got to lighten up a little. At least I get a little heavy with it. Some of these things are, are more difficult to understand than other things. It's easy to understand. Try not to express negative emotions. None of us understand it, but we all think we do. So that's easy. 
It's when you get to these things that we know we don't understand, then we give up. It's like, but the easy ideas we understand immediately and we don't understand them. The more difficult ideas we don't understand at all and we give up. So, of course, this leaves us with almost no understanding at all, which is kind of what the fourth way is. It's a place for people to collect who have no understanding but a lot of nuts, something like that. Put it all together, it'll become clear to you what I'm talking about. Dim understanding provides dim light on our path. If your understanding is bright, you have a bright light on your path. In other words, you're going to be able to see things about yourself that you could never see before. If your understanding is dim, you're going to see the same thing you always see. Oh yeah, that's my foot. Oh yeah, that's, that's that. Yeah, that's my hand. That's what you're going to see over and over and over again. Oh, my hand. Oh, my fingernails have grown. Oh, my hand looks a little dirty now. But you're not going to see anything new. But with a bright, full understanding, you're going to see new things. And you're going to see new things a lot. And that's going to challenge you. <laughs> Seeing new things about yourself is always a challenge. It's never very pleasant, especially because the things that we need to see are unpleasant. If they weren't unpleasant, why would we have hidden them in the darkest closet of the house that we could find in the deepest part of the basement where all the lights and the wiring have been completely removed and the windows have been bricked up? Because we didn't want any light on those things. So now that we've changed our tune because of these work ideas and we think, well, but now I'm going to let some light in. Well, we do let some light in. And if it's a dim light, it's not so bad. In the beginning, it's pretty bad. But the light has to continue to brighten. Our understanding has to continue to grow, or else we see the same things over and over again. And that doesn't do us any good other than to serve, to inflate our ego, to feed our imagination, our imaginary eye, and make us think that we're doing something that we're not doing at all. But we don't have to do that. We can't really get there from here, since the truth is, is we imagine that we're working almost all the time. We imagine that we're awake. We imagine that we're one. We imagine that we can do. So this is where we came from. What's strange is that the work brings us back to that point. And when the work brings us back to that point, it's up to us to up the ante a little bit to bring a little more understanding and a little more courage to the process of self-observation. When I say a little more courage, what I mean is we've got to have the courage to begin to observe what is unpleasant so that we can begin to separate from it. First, you'll identify with what you observe and you'll want it to go away. But the courage comes in continuing to look and waiting for the work ideas to put something between you and what you're looking at. And they will if you're faithful. The stronger our mechanical attitudes, the more blind we are psychologically, spiritually. As an example, in Proverbs, it's written, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who listens to counsel is wise. That's Proverbs 12.15, if you ever get the notion to look it up. Because we can't observe attitudes directly, we must begin by observing their results. How do you do that? The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. How do you do that? How do you observe their results? Here's a good place to start. When we're sure we're right, that needs to become a huge red flag waving back and forth in our face. In fact, waving furiously in our face. Because that's a result. When you're certain that you're right, when you're sure that you're right, when you know that you're right, that is a result of a fixed attitude. That's when you begin to look for that fixed attitude. What is the fixed attitude? I'm right. I think I'm right. There's an orderly process at which the false personality rebels. This is the first hurdle. Can we obey greater ideas of esotericism? Or will the false personality continue to dictate what we do? Nine out of ten times, the false personality is going to continue to dictate what we do. But can you, once 
out of every 10 times, and this is figuratively, don't get mathematical on me. You know I'm not a mathematician. Don't get literal, don't get rigid. But can you obey one of these greater ideas? Your job is to obey more of them more often. That's your job. That's what you need to be doing. The mind must first be awakened by the power of these ideas so that we can start thinking in a new way. Or else the emotional center will not begin to awaken. And if the emotional center doesn't awaken, it can never give us a new feeling of ourselves. We have to have a new feeling of ourselves. We're not going to progress if we feel like we feel now. Because how we feel now is all wrapped up with imaginary eye. It's all wrapped up with identifying with ourselves. So we're going to have to have a completely new feeling of ourselves. The emotional center will feed us a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, so that our feeling of ourselves slowly begins to change. And it changes so slowly that we hardly recognize it at all. Every once in a while we see a result. Some big thing happens and we realize we didn't react the way we always reacted. We went, wow, that's different. I feel different about that. I feel differently about that event. I feel differently about that person. I feel differently about this situation. Then we know that something in the emotional center has been awakened and it has given us, to some degree, a new feeling of ourselves. That new feeling of ourselves is the key to non-identification. You have this new feeling of yourself. It's like, well, that doesn't bother me anymore. Why is that? Because you're not identified with that anymore. You feel yourself differently than in that identification. So whatever it is you're identified with, whether it's your child or your job or your car or your house or your silly hat, whatever it is that you're identified with, and then one day you see the silliness of it all and you're not identified with it. That is because you have a different feeling of who you are, a different feeling of yourself apart from that thing with which you used to identify, that thing that you used to be glued to. Ospensky said, among many things we defend so uselessly and lose force over is our ignorance. (laughs) You know, the thing about Ospensky, you remember some years ago, I was really not wild about Ospensky because he was so intellectual and kind of rigid. And and I think, you know, but now I look at him and I think, wow, so I must have really changed because now I look at Ospensky and I think, wow, how succinct, how pithy. You know, he just reduced things to a reduction. Everything was a reduction for Ospensky. He reduced things to their basic, simple... And sometimes that's just hard to take in the beginning. Sometimes we we don't like that reduction. We like the full sauce. We want the full thing. The reduction is just too strong for us. The taste is too strong and we rebel. But as you progress, you know, you find that the reduction is really exactly what you want. It's exactly what you need. It's the strong medicine that you want. This work can provide for you strong medicine. And that's why so many people leave it. (laughs) It's like, that was too strong for them. So they they bail. And they go find a spoonful of sugar. And that's fine. Nothing wrong with that at all. Maybe they'll be able to come back to this someday when they're ready for strong medicine. Um, When they're ready to take a look at what they have hidden away that is not something that they want to look at now. It's understandable. We all have those areas, every one of us. If you're sitting here, you have those areas. There are areas in which I am not allowed to tread. There are areas in which no one is allowed to tread. There are areas that you protect, you will protect to the death. Okay, we've learned enough to let people have their areas and not to go marching in and try and take it by force because it doesn't work. This is called self-development, which means you're the one who has to give up that area. It's not something that I'm going to come and take from you. not something anyone is going to come and take from you. It's not something that God is going to take from you. It's something that you must relinquish on your own because you wish to. Attitudes make us think we know when we're really ignorant. And as Ospensky said, among the many things we defend so uselessly and lose force over is our ignorance. We don't like being ignorant. We don't like it. Why don't we like it? Well, it offends pride and vanity. That's why we don't like it. It offends pride and vanity. 
Vipassana meditation taught me I didn't know the difference between thoughts, feelings, and sensations. Oh, I thought I knew the difference, but the actual experience of meditating 10 hours a day for 10 days straight, not talking to anybody, not looking at anybody, not having anything to do with anyone, just doing that 10 hours a day for 10 days straight after a couple of doing that a couple of times in a couple of months, I started to get the idea that I really didn't know the difference between thoughts, feelings, and sensations. Because I practiced 10 hours a day, 10 days straight, separating thoughts, feelings, and sensations and observing them. This is a thought, this is a feeling, this is a sensation. It's astounding how often people who profess to understand argue about these ideas. If you understand, argument is impossible. Bruce Nicole said, to argue is not to understand. To understand is not to argue. No one was ever changed by arguing. That's a powerful idea threefold powerful idea. To argue is not to understand. To understand is not to argue. No one was ever changed by arguing. The objections that you have to that, no one was ever changed by arguing, is what you need to deal with. That's what you must observe. You have an objection because somewhere you have in your history, somewhere you have in your old associations that either you or someone else was changed through arguing. And that is not true. And that's what I mean by obeying the work ideas. That's the work idea. Now, find out how that is true and what you hold is not true. That's your job. Doubt yourself. Doubt your old associations and obey this idea. Now, what's the idea going to make you do? Oh, it's a terrible, dangerous thing. You'll stop arguing. Oh, yes, that is dangerous. Think of how your life will change then. Think of all the excitement and negative emotions that you'll miss out on. Think of all the force that you usually just leak away that you'll save. What will you do with all that? I can save it up for a really big argument. And that is what we generally do with all that. It's a sure sign the ideas reside in the intellectual center alone and have not yet dribbled down to the emotional center when people are arguing. It's a very difficult thing to say to someone because a person who argues, if you tell them that they're arguing, they want to argue about it. And so it doesn't do any good to tell them that they're arguing. No matter how many times they ask you, well, why is it this way? Why is it that way? Just leave them alone <laughs> because they don't want an answer. They just want an argument. And very difficult to give up arguing. What do you suppose would have to go first before you could start to give up arguing? The twins. It's going to be the twins. Pride and vanity. Pride and vanity must be made a little bit more passive before you can even see what it is that keeps you from giving up arguing. It is pride and vanity. The twin monsters, the first thing they do is they blind us. One takes out the left eye, the other one takes out the right eye. I know Gurdjieff didn't say that exactly. He may have said the right eye and the left eye. He may have said nothing at all. But I can tell you this, that pride and vanity first blind you. They first put your eyes out. And from my perspective, one takes an eye and the other takes the other eye. The result being we end up blind to ourselves. And this work aims at opening our eyes so that we are no longer blind to ourselves, but doing it slowly because if the light comes too quickly, that in and of itself can blind us. Notice how often you object to things that I say. That's a form of arguing. Well, but I'm not arguing with you. That's another form of arguing. You see, the objection is a form of arguing. When we begin to become conscious of an attitude, we cut down its supply of power over us. Attitudes have power over us. They exercise tremendous amount of power over us. Look at what attitudes make people do. Just take, for example, people who are in the fashion world. Look at the things that they will wear. Look at how they walk. Look at people in politics. Look at the things that they wear. Look at how they walk. Listen to what they say. Look at people who are in entertainment. Look at the things they wear. Listen to what they say. Look how they walk. Can you see that attitudes dictate what people will do and make them do all kinds of really absurd things? We saw a picture. Who was it, Connie? That guy, uh, Mickey Rourke? Saw a picture of somebody, some paparazzi guy, got a picture of him walking down Hollywood Boulevard. And he was dressed like a flamboyant bag lady. 
I mean, that's all I can say. It was just like, oh my gosh. And I thought, it's attitude that makes us do things like that. If you're an artist and you dress like an artist, it's attitude. If you're a, whatever you are and you dress like that, it's attitude. If you act like that, it's attitude. Whatever it is, it's attitude. Attitude makes us do these things, but we don't see it. All we can see is the result of it, and we don't usually see the result of it because we're in the attitude, but other people see the result of it. They can say, well, that's his attitude, but we don't see it. Anything that comes into the light of consciousness is deprived of its power. Anything that comes into the light of consciousness is deprived of its power. It no longer has power over us as we become conscious of it. So if you become conscious of some attitude that you have, like that you always want to be in control, that you always want to be right, that you always are right, whatever your attitude is, if you become conscious of that attitude, it no longer has the sting that it had. It no longer has the power to compel you. It cannot compel you to behave as you always behaved. Because you see it, you will automatically be a little more separate from it because you're not it when you're seeing it. When you're observing it, you're not being it, and so it can't compel you. Because our ignorance remains unknown to us, we are imprisoned by it. We think we know this acts as our prison. We imagine that we know. We imagine that we're not ignorant. Listen to yourself sometimes. Have you, how many times have you ever heard yourself say, I know, I know. Somebody will be talking to you, I know. This is an attitude. It's the attitude that I know that I'm not ignorant. And it's closely linked to the attitude that I'm right, which of course we know makes you wrong if you don't agree with me. The way out is to locate ourselves accurately in the scale of being. Will we continue to behave as if we are free of prejudice? Will we continue to behave as if we are free of mechanical opinions? Will we continue to go around through life inflexible? Will we continue to have these hard spots in our minds, impenetrable hard spots in our minds, where we cannot listen, will not listen, where we know and we're set? Will we continue to do that? You will if you don't locate yourself in the scale of being properly. The idea of this work must eventually grind against our unconscious, mechanical, fixed attitudes. This work is anathema to the false personality. And the false personality loves its attitudes, its fixed ideas, its mechanical ways of doing things. Everything is the way it wants it. And this work upsets that. It's very upsetting to the false personality. This is why people run from this work. I remember one time reading that someone was discussing Beelzebub's Tales to his grandson. <laughs> and this guy says, I hate that book. I hate that book. And I hate that books are ever written like that. You know, it makes me want to never read. This is a good thing. It means that the ideas are grinding against our unconscious mechanical fixed attitudes. Because when those unconscious mechanical fixed attitudes are roughed up, they rebel with, I hate this. They get negative. And we can observe that. That's a result that we can observe. And thereby notice that we do indeed have these attitudes that we don't see. Or will pride and vanity answer automatically? Or will we bite the bullet and yield to some higher idea? It always comes down to this simple choice. Are you going to let your pride and vanity dictate what you do? Or are you going to bite the bullet and go with a higher idea, go with a better eye? Which are you going to do right now? And the walk is simple if you keep it to that. Of course, remembering to keep it to that is not so easy. We can't stay in the same place. We either move forward or we're going back. Pharaoh had this dream. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, In my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. 
After them, seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I had never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. In my dreams, I also saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none could explain it to me. So there you have this story. And esoterically, of course, it can mean a lot of things. One of the things that it meant to Pharaoh was, it was a prophetic dream, that they were going to have seven years of great crops and abundance, and then seven years of famine afterwards. And because the dream came to him twice, in two different ways, it was certain that it was going to happen. That's basically how Joseph told about the dream. But it also means other things, too. Because esoterically, just like there's man number one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven, there's understanding number one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. So one of the meanings of this is also that attitudes eat up force given us by esoteric ideas, that old thoughts gobble up new thoughts, and they don't change. Do you see that the old attitudes will take these ideas and they will just put them right in their old attitudes? They put on the school uniform and you get nothing from it? That these esoteric ideas can be gobbled up by our old thoughts and fall right in line? They just fit right in there and nothing good ever comes of it for us? That's another thing that that means. Try to see an attitude in yourself. Try to see, for example, that you haven't got an open mind. I don't have to sit up at night thinking about these things. All I have to do is look at myself. Try to notice when you're speaking from attitudes. A good place to start is when you open your mouth. If your mouth is going, you're probably speaking from an attitude. Not always, but probably. So start to observe there. Remember that a man can't change himself unless he changes his attitudes. We must try to see the results of our attitudes because we're not going to easily see our attitudes. But we can, a little more easily, see the results of our attitudes. Notice, for example, when you feel insulted, when you feel shocked, when you feel judgmental, when you feel contemptuous or intolerant. There's an underlying attitude. What is it? It's not enough to say, oh yes, that's an attitude. What is it? What is that attitude? Try to become aware of when you're speaking from an attitude, which again, shouldn't be that easy. If you're speaking, you should be aware. You should at least be aware of the idea that you're very likely speaking from an attitude. Now, what is that attitude? Notice the inflections in your voice. Notice your body language. And if you can, notice your facial expressions. You don't have to be looking in a mirror to notice your facial expressions. You can feel them on your face. When our mind is used by attitudes, it limits our awakening and leaves us to die like a dog. Your choice is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind or to die like a brute beast prepared for destruction. How you observe yourself and what you do about what you observe will determine which of those happens for you. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at SolidRockVista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.